<laughs> Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the Sen Mums Career Club, a podcast exploring the highs and lows of trying to climb the career ladder whilst raising children with complex or additional needs. My name is Lisa Miller. I'm a journalist with three children. My eldest daughter Beatrix has a condition called Kabuki syndrome. She's under various medical and therapeutic specialists and attends a Sen school. Every week, I'm joined by a different guest to discuss work and ambition through the lens of special needs parenting. Today, I'd like to introduce award-winning PR director, Natalie Trice. Natalie has had an illustrious career working on global brands, including CNN, Cartoon Network, Discovery Channel, and Epson. She lives in Devon with her husband and two sons. Lucas, who's now 14, has congenital condition developmental dysplasia of the hip, or DDH, and has required numerous surgeries. Following their experiences, Natalie wrote a book, Cast Life, A Parent's Guide to DDH, and also set up the charity Spike a Warrior. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for such a lovely... <laughs> such a lovely introduction it's always quite nice to listen to your bio isn't it <laughs> oh yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've been really looking forward to this podcast because B uh my daughter is badly affected by hip dysplasia and I've used some of your resources in the past so I am especially glad this podcast has has brought us together oh that's great well it's great to know that it that the resources are helpful oh, absolutely so, yeah Let's take it back a bit to begin with and talk about you and work pre-children. How did you get into PR? I, I, I literally fell into it. Um, I, I, I graduated, I taught in Tokyo for a year, came back and needed a job and literally just, yeah, walked into a, walked into a receptionist job in an agency in London. Um, wasn't very good with the phones as we saw with the tech before we started speaking. So that lasted about a week and... Um, yeah, I just, I, I just, I loved it. It's a, it, it's a, as, as you know, probably from the other side, it's a very kind of fast paced, good for preparing you for parenting because you're, you're constantly spinning lots of plates, juggling lots of projects. You've got lots of stakeholders. Um, and so I never, I never set out with the intention. I did an art history degree. Um, I never set out with the intention of, of working in PR, but, um, yeah, it seemed it seemed to find me. And before I had my first son, who is now 16, I headed up the um, PR for Europe, the Middle East and Africa for Cartoon Network, Boomerang, TCM. Um, yeah, so I kind of I had I had the big job before the big job of, of parenting. Incredible. And what was your work situation when Lucas was born? Yeah, so when um, I'd actually I'd actually had a situation where I was pregnant with my first son and um, was actually being bullied in a new role, and I I just left. So I kind of left, set up uh, as freelance. What's that? Seventeen years ago. So before it was even really done, before there was any networking or anything. Um, so when Lucas was born, I was on maternity leave, but I'd established a you know, like a consulting business. Um, and as with my first son, I took a longer 
pre-birth maternity leave um, and was planning on going back. I did go back, um, even though the issues came along and kind of threw me off course um, and threw us off course. There wasn't really a point when I didn't work in some capacity. And I think that's because of the nature of PR um, and because I was always very aware that if I just stopped, it would be potentially quite difficult to get back in. And in hindsight, looking at the changes in the, in the media landscape, looking at social media, looking at AI now, all of those things, it, it I think it would have been more difficult. But I kind of kept something going in some capacity at all times. Wow. I mean, that's a lot with two children, never mind. <laughs> never mind with additional issues on top, isn't it? We all, we all know what, you know what an incredible challenge yes. that is. So how and when did you first get the diagnosis for Lucas? And, and you know, how, how were you feeling at that point? Um, okay, so he was, there was a history of, of hip dysplasia um, in our family, quite a strong history. It was on my notes. His, um, I think his newborn check was kind of in between shifts and there was still this nagging feeling with me only because he was quite funny he kind of sat like a little cat so I've got pictures of him sitting on my husband and he let, there just was something um so when we went for his check we were told he was a bit stiff um and then I was taking his buggy backwards sorry it's such a long time ago it's like 14 years but I was literally taking his buggy reversing his buggy out of this little office and they said we'll scan him in case so it was nearly one of these cases and in the work I've done since it's not unusual that it was nearly missed altogether only to be told three weeks later by a sonographer um that oh this is a bad case we'll be seeing a lot of you that was how I was that's how I was told gosh. that he had it gosh yeah it was the first thing that came up with B so B was born late at night um, and when she came out she looked a bit sort of we say smushy she looked a bit smushy when she came out like her little ears she's got very small ears and they're sort of low-sighted and a bit misshapen but she was born with forceps and we were first time parents and we don't know, you know, they come out and if you read all these things like, well, they're going to be a bit swollen. Yeah. She, she looked, you know, just a bit battered about basically, you know, as, as babies tend to do when they, when they've first been born, we didn't really think anything yeah. of it. And so she yeah. had her newborn check in the morning and I didn't even go. My husband went cause I was knackered and in no sort of fit state to do it. He went along with her. We, yeah. you know, Again, we were first-time parents. We had no idea of the kind of magnitude of something like that. And mm. and nor could we. You know, I've since had two other children and they're, you know, and was absolutely bracing my check myself for these newborn checks. And they were absolutely fine. It's just yeah. tick, 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 tick. It's yeah. unbelievable. Completely different experience. But yeah. with B, we went in and the hip was the first thing. It did the thunk when okay. they stressed the hip, you know. Yeah. And the doctor apparently was like, oh it's not really meant to do that. It made the thunk. Um, and then there were a few other little bits and pieces she picked up, you know, her, obviously her, you could, she could see her little ears. 
Um, and she detected a bit of a murmur on her heart. Um, when -hmm. she was in utero, they thought maybe she might have an issue with her kidney because one of her kidneys was sort of borderline looking a little bit enlarged. So all of this added up to just, you know, we need to monitor her more closely. And she ended up in, um, the special care baby unit from then on. And we were in there for five days, left after five days with referrals for all of the little bits and pieces, you know, that didn't seem quite right, but she was making good progress, you know, so we we were allowed to go home, which was great because it was five days before Christmas. And I was really like, oh gosh, don't be in hospital yeah. over Christmas yeah. um <laughs> so that was that so so the hip dysplasia you know and and looking back you know obviously it's like gosh this is terrible this is awful but hearing stories like yours Natalie makes me think but at least we at least we got it so early at least we got it so early because yeah. she then went into the pavlic harness quite quickly after that um right and that's you know that's difficult in itself did Lucas have the harness mm, mm, mm. If I knew then what I know now, so essentially what I did was I went into research mode. Um, my dad was with me when he um, when she was when he was diagnosed. My sister had had it, so it's almost like I was reliving the trauma of being three, and he was going back to that. Um, and then um we went oh god it's yeah it's only when I talk about it I realize how awful it was Mm -hmm. so we went back the next day and this same nurse said right well we're essentially just going to put him in what are very restrictive dungarees and if these don't work we'll put him in concrete for a few months gosh uh so I had a two-year-old I had just been told okay we're not doing you know baby yoga and baby chinos we're doing you know hard on something else um and then he didn't adapt very well at all um he was three months he wasn't a particularly big baby but even at that point I knew that something wasn't quite right um and I'm not particularly as you probably guessed someone that just takes things at face value so he was getting more distressed and we had a private doctor in London and I said to my husband, we need to go see David because I don't think what they're saying is right. I'd been on a forum and it was very difficult because some of the other parents, because they were further on their journey and I see this on reflection, they shouldn't do this and they shouldn't. What you really want at that time, as you probably know, is someone to go it, just to be a bit softer mm-hmm. and to be a bit kinder about it all. So we went to see David um, and it's this all ties into why I ended up doing what I did, because we had the ability to go and see a private GP who happens to know a world class orthopaedic surgeon that specialises in paediatrics. So we took him to see Mr. Najad, which cost again, um, and he said, we'll take him out of that harness now because that will do more harm than good. So not only was long term, they said that he would be in that harness for up to 12 months, which is so, so wrong. That's not what what should happen at all. Um, and when they took him off, he was covered in sores. So it's no oh. wonder that he was crying. So you then have the mum guilt. So you have and I, I tried to kind of get rid of that as soon as I could because I realised that energy wasn't working. But um, then Mr. Najad said, we'll take you as an NHS patient. I didn't have the energy to fight with the first hospital who just got it so, so wrong right from the beginning. 
um, but I put my energy into my children. But also what happens, what happens to those parents who cannot do what I did? What happens to the single mother? What happens to the woman who's potentially in an abusive relationship? What happens to someone who's not, as someone said, a woman like me changing the world? Not everyone can do that. And if someone doesn't change it, it won't change. Um, it could be a full-time job changing it. And I did a lot of campaigning for a long time. Um, but I just know that had I not taken him to see this doctor, and we did go down the NHS route. It, you know, the NHS were fantastic. Lucas was just a, <laughs> a very difficult case. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm feeling this, then other people will feel it. And I kept, well, where's the book? Where's the, um, you know, steps were there. They pr provided support. Um, but there were no books. Well, there was nothing up to date. So I thought, well, it didn't do anything to begin with. So I think he was six months when he had a closed reduction. So again, it's that trauma of you've got this tiny baby. And people say things like, oh, well, it's not like he's got cancer. And you think, well, thank God he's not got cancer, you know, but this is enough that I've got a tiny baby who's naked and I'm handing him over to strangers for the best part of six hours to be broken and remade over and over and over again. And that, yeah, there were a lot of learnings for me as, as a mother, but also as a, just as a person on actually how people don't know how to deal with this. Um, it, it makes them uncomfortable. Um, and it's not cancer, thank God, on reflection. But that kind of those those kind of comments are just not helpful at all, and they make you feel further isolated. And you have to keep coming back to this idea: it's not me. And I say, okay, it's not me. It's not my legs. It's my hips. But the yeah, the immense strain of thinking, and also the roller coaster. Mm. I think of he had the first operation, and that didn't work. So we spent four, five, we, he spent four, five months in literally, yeah, concrete. So he was in a spiker cast. Um, and then we went for a check when he was about 18 months and that hadn't worked. Um, so he then had to have an open reduction and ephemeral osteotomy. So they, they had to be a lot more invasive, break his, break his femur. Um, he was two. So he was then in a cast from nipple to toe. Um, with a stick in between his legs and a hole for his nappy. Um, and he was in that for another four months. You can imagine a two-year-old. Um, at that point, he went mute. So he'd been speaking. We'd just been on a cruise. Um, his gait was really bad. So not only was he dealing with the, the choppy sea, but also it, it was quite comical because I think you have to laugh at some points. Um, and that, that was... That was awful. Um, he, he was so angry. And I thought at one point he was actually going to smash the cast because he used to used to sleep on his side. But then what he would do is he'd be pulling himself around very effectively. Um, the cast probably weighed more than he did. And I was certainly very strong from carrying him all the time. But he would smash the cast against the wall to try and break it off. So that was very, very hard. Um, people looking people coming back for a second look with their friends that was a really nice moment in Zara um the big issue lady offering me her money for her for my son and someone asking me what I had done to him 
Oh my goodness. Uh, that, that was is... a <laughs> That oh, was a high point. Time. Yeah. I mean that was one of my sort of worst nightmares really when B was in the cast. So B was in her cast from nine months for, for about 12 weeks and she's six now and she's due to have this surgery again so we're yeah. facing down the summer actually in about two weeks time okay. um you know it, her, her body didn't respond to it the way that we would have hoped yeah. so we've been sort of facing down ever since that first surgery it's sort of been looming and now we're, we're coming up to it again and she's six so it's going to be a very different um scenario but I remember having her in that cast as a little baby and you know, it's very difficult to get used to them in this yeah. adaptive stuff. The harness was kind of bad enough. Um, yeah. You know, you can't, you know, she's a tiny baby. And I was all the time like, what if I don't bond properly with her? Because all I read about is skin to skin and lovely bath times and bonding. And like you say, the yeah. baby yoga and all that stuff. It, yeah. it goes out the window. She's in like a full body harness um, at that time. You know, I couldn't even hold her properly to my body because there was something in the way. Yeah. So on top of actually dealing with the practicalities of that and what do you dress her in, et cetera, like I'm worried that emotionally she's being damaged from this. Yeah. Um, and then, yes, and then she she went into the, the cast and I am very fortunate that nobody commented on it but I was very very conscious because I thought how how does a baby go into like you know and to describe a spiker cast it is you know from the waist she had it down both legs to the ankle and her legs mm -hmm. are sort of sticking out at, a, mm -hmm. at an angle because yeah. essentially the the point of the surgery is to put the hip um, in place the the ball socket yeah into yeah. um into the socket in the right place and hold it there so that the bones can grow properly um yeah. and everything is, is is sort of more firm than it was before it's a bit loose if you don't do that um and I I was so conscious of it and I thought people are gonna think I've thrown her down the stairs or yeah. hurt yeah. her you know yeah. what what must people think mm -hmm. and that is so difficult and draining when you're dealing like you say there's a hole in it for her nappy how do you change her what do you dress her in can she fit in her buggy can she go in a car seat um uh, you know the practicalities of yeah. it are awful then you pile on the emotional stuff but then other people you know mm, mm. it's I'm so sorry that happened to you that's un unbelievable how did you react to that uh well I, I think in all honesty so at this point he was in the second cast he was much bigger he was in a, oh, it was a buggy my other son was about to start school and I just and I talk about it often but I just ended up I think I just had a bit of a breakdown because I was so exhausted of okay it's worked it hasn't worked it hasn't worked we've got to do this I carried on working I carried on building my business he was so angry at me Oh, it, he was, the, the terrible twos were just awful. And then the terrible twos turned into the terrible threes. And of course he would, because I'm his, you know, I'm his safe place. I, but I was also the one that took him to surgery. I was the mm. one who wheeled him down to be hurt. And in the end, I stopped my business for a while. And um, <laughs> he started prep school early. Because I just couldn't, you know, and he would go in and there'd be, what a lovely little boy. And he'd come out and literally throw stones at me. It, it it was hard. It was, I don't know what was harder, whether it was the operations and the recovery or the aftermath, but 
you think this poor child, they don't understand. They don't understand that they go to sleep and they wake up and then they're all of a sudden incarcerated. So you, you're having to kind of manage their emotions, keep your marriage together. My other son, luckily, was so good. He never once complained. He never once felt any of it. And I was very mindful when I wrote Cast Life that um, you need to think about the other children and how they feel. And I'm sure you do that with your, you know, with your other two. I actually didn't have a third because I couldn't cope with having another child that had it which sounds ridiculous but I think having lived through it as a child myself with my sister and then it dominating such a lot of our life because then what happened was at three he was fixed and then we had a couple of clear years and then um he was six and a half and we went to see Mr Najad um and he was broken again so at six, we were told that where they had done the um, broken his leg at two, his his bones had kindly decided to grow a bit too much, <laughs> which put everything out again. So um, two days after the book was launched um, and I launched what was at the time Spurker Warrior that over time evolved into DDHUK. He was six and a half and he had a pelvic osteotomy. So they essentially broke his pelvis um, and repinned it back together. We didn't have a cast that time, um, and he was quite, quite petite. So um, he had a wheelchair. He had a gold frame. The hospital were amazing, and we were there for about a week. So again, my other son, but he quite liked the wheelchair and coming in, um, and he had quite a lot of time off school. He wouldn't go to school because he said there was we on the floor in the loose and he didn't want to slip and break his leg again. So he, he, he stayed at home. Um, and that, yeah, that, that was hard. That was really hard. Um, because you feel like you have been robbed yeah. of what was normal. Yeah. We had one more surgery after that to remove the bolt out of his pelvis that I've still got somewhere. I think one day, maybe when he's 18, I'll get it made into something. <laughs> um, and <laughs> he took it in his stride, but it was harsh. So I wrote that book and I was working again and I set up the charity. We did a lot of campaigning. We did a lot of, of I've done loads and loads of PR. Again, that's how my career has come into it. We did a massive walk with the boys' school in Devon. We had a Paralympic swimmer join us. We've done TV, we've done radio and in some kind of bid to think if I felt like that and I had and I'm quite resourceful, you've got to make it more accessible for other people. Um, and I say, you know, because of him, yes, there's the book, but thousands of thousands of families around the world have been impacted by the network we created um, and. I think so much now. So he's 14. Um, he's a massive football fan. He loves football. Unfortunately, he also likes smashing it in the on the rugby field. Doesn't make my heart sing, but um, the consultant said to us, you, you've worked this hard to get him legs that work. You need to let him use them, hmm. which is hard because my default is still at 14. Be careful. He's 14. You know, it, I can't do that forever. We have one more appointment with the with our surgeon 
down here in Devon. So when we moved house, we relocated in the end because I think that it had such a massive impact on us as a family. He was broken physically, but I was certainly broken. Um, you're living constantly, as you said, of this kind of impending doom. Every time you've got an appointment, you're thinking, what, what this time? You know, and it's fine for people to say, and I'm relatively positive and I wish I'd have known about manifesting back then. But, you know, the reality of having to go to the hospital to sit in what are quite often not particularly pleasant waiting rooms. Quite often there would be a prisoner flanked in the in the waiting room with us in X-ray who was there with a couple of prison officers after, you know, I've seen some horrible things. But I think having been through that, it either makes you or it breaks you. And it very, very nearly did break us. Um, I think if we hadn't have moved, so we lived in the home counties, it was very competitive. It was very fast paced. I really didn't like living there. Um, and so we packed up. It'll be seven years next week. I'm celebrating by going to see the Barbie movie. They're obviously not coming. Um, but... <laughs> I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> I had to say to one of my friends who's got girls, I'm going to see Barbie. Um, it nearly destroyed us. It really, if I think about it now, yes, it, it gave me the first of what is three books because I have a busy brain. But most of all, what I take from it is that However awful those nights were on hospital wards, the the bond that I have not only with Lucas but also with Eddie is is so strong. And I don't actually know how we did it. Yeah. I don't know how. I, I can just remember sitting on the floor at Bista Village one day and sobbing. He was about three and we were meant to be on a, a mini break. And I was like, I'm so tired of having my son broken and remade. And that kind of anger of why us? Um, and and the thing, it could be worse. Yeah, you know what? I, I know it could be worse. But when a parent of a child who suffers from nothing more than teething or a cold says it could be worse, you actually just want to scream at them because at the time that is enough. Yeah, You know, those hours of waiting to go back to to get him from theatre, not knowing what he'll come out looking like is hard. Watching another child go into crash is hard. But then seeing him, you know, be scouted for a local football team. And then he says, don't cry, mum. Don't cry before I tell you this. Or he, last week, he went off to Exeter City and played with them. Now, that for me is massive because of everything that we have been through. That, that spirit... That was so demanding when it was obviously so traumatic actually has taken us to this point. It's never an easy journey because I still think, oh, what if next time they say? And then so then my other son um, is like, well, it's fine. If he needs a new hip, I'll just print it on my 3D printer. <laughs> That's the future, hey. <laughs> yeah, right? Let's take a short break. Before we go into part two of the show, I'd like to give a shout out to our sister podcast, Baby on the Brain. Join Stylist Magazine's Felicity Thistlethwaite as she takes a mainstream look at the big parenting issues, from finding your identity after children to combating sleep deprivation. It's an informative listen 
packed with expert views, lively debate and laugh out loud moments. Discover Baby on the Brain from Stylist Magazine, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I think it's important to point out, you know, that although DDH is a congenital condition, you know, unlike B and many other children with Lucas, it, it wasn't a byproduct of, of another syndrome. So he doesn't have a learning disability. No. But no. that isn't to minimise your experience at all, because it really, like you say, it, it affected every part Everything. of your lives, didn't it? Um, yeah. It really did. I think I'd talk about it, but it, it, it wasn't life threatening, but it was... <laughs> It was certainly life changing and it was life challenging. And I think as a mother and I don't and I know we talked about your career um, and other mothers or parents who are listening to this. I was so angry because this isn't what I wanted. You know, I wanted my career. I had a big career. And then I felt bad for being angry about me. Um, and you have all those emotions and there's no one to talk to because nobody understands. Um, and you think, well, I essentially have just become this hospital mum and a slight campaigner. And I was self-employed. I mean, thank God I was self-employed because I would have to work from his bed. So when I, but I it's things like I remember when he, he was six, he had this big operation and a resident from UCL came and found me. And I was like, oh, we're just we're just waiting for the doctor to come and see Lucas. He's like, no, no, I wanted you to sign your, I want to, I've got your book. Could you sign it? And I was like, okay, I have to take some, I have to take some of what could be the silver linings out of what was a difficult situation. But at no point was there a point I was going to just not do anything. Yeah. And I think, I think your point earlier about the system and trusting the system and you know when you when you went for the second opinion was was a really interesting one you know I feel like we've been very fortunate with all of B's care but what you realize living in this world which I never would have known otherwise is that it's not black and white you know it's not a yes and a no so B's hip is is a major issue for her and she had her surgery when she was baby and ever since she's been on a regular check we take her for x-rays and I have spent the last five years looking at x-rays of her little hip and being told look at the left one that's what the right one should look like but it still doesn't and now we're coming up to this surgery for her and we're we're working with a new surgeon because um her other consultant is is um retiring so um we went we met with her for the first time and she said now I'm looking at her x-ray and the left hip does look a little bit dysplasic and I remember just being a bit like, wait, what? What? Mm. I've, I've spent years looking at this and listening to medical yeah. professionals saying that one looks normal. This one is a problem. And you can see, look, look at the difference you can see. And she was yeah. like, oh, yeah, that one still just doesn't look quite right. And, you know, again, she explains it all to me. You know, she says, you know, there's obviously, you know, we focus on that one is obviously worse the right. You know, she's mm-hmm. like, there's the, mm-hmm. you focus on the bad hip. And she was like, you know, it might be that the left one is fine, but, you know, while we're doing the the surgery, what I'd like to do is, you know, to put in a little bit of dye, just test yeah. it, just see what's there. And of course, I would rather that than not. But equally, it's just it's just always something 
else. It is just always something else. Just when you think you've got hold of the thing and you know yeah. the thing and yeah. you know what you're going to do about the thing, something just comes from the field and knocks you off Absolutely. your feet again. And it is again and again and again and again. And I think that is one of the hardest things to try and express about this weird absolutely. existence I absolutely hear you that I used to say to my husband I want to swear but I'm not going to but just gonna, <laughs> it's, a, it's another thing it's an I totally get that I mean I have seen I have seen hundreds of parents if not thousands of parents talking about this the diagnosis is late it doesn't have to be this way you know and I don't often get on my soapbox anymore but not only does the lack of joined up approach to hip dysplasia, not only in the UK, but on a global scale, lead to children suffering. I don't like to think how many adults having hip replacements actually have had an element of hip dysplasia that wasn't picked up. We've got a crumbling NHS that um, is spending more money by multiple surgeries. I don't know how much Lucas has cost the NHS, but it's a lot of money. Um, and it is frustrating on that level, but again, it, it's the, I think it's the emotional toll when they say, and you know, because they put their pen down and there's a deep breath and you know, it's coming and you just think, oh, I can't do this. Oh, but you're strong. I'm like, I don't want to be strong anymore. I just want to be a normal mum. And that, yeah, that kind of frustration. And I'm very you know, I'm very aware. I know you spoke to to Debs, my friend Debs. You know, I'm I'm aware that we're at a point with Lucas. My husband's far more black and white than me. He's like, it's broken. We'll fix it. It's maintenance and repair now. I'm like, okay, I can I can get to that point because we're so much further down the line. Um, but even talking to you, I can I can feel those old emotions. I can feel the therapy sessions I had that were just like, why does it have to be my child? And I think that's really difficult for parents because there's always someone that will say well, it could be worse or at least you've got children. We're not negating that fact. That isn't the point. It's just this isn't normal parenting. This is really, really hard. Mm. Um, and I think it's more a case of you think, well, what about me? And not in a selfish way, but in a you're so consumed with making sure they're OK that the other children are okay, that, you know, it, it it's all these things. And I think the mums come down to this thing where you're then working, you're keeping the house going, you're doing all these things. And it, it's so much. And I think that also there's this very difficult point that you're neurotic as a mother. And I'm not saying all healthcare professionals by any means, uh, you're just worrying unnecessarily or you're being neurotic or they're the authority figures. We know this, but we're allowed to question you because they are our children. Mm. And his mobility for the rest of his life is a question if I do not pick you up on this. And now hopefully people will do the same when they don't think it's the right thing. But that can be very difficult for some people because they're not as gobby as I might I'm not I'm not it's just you have to be a very strong advocate for your child and that is not something that is instilled there's no lesson in that no absolutely and it is such it is such an important point isn't it and I think this is where as 
working mums, I often think, you know, some of the skills that I use in my career, you know, you do transfer over to that care of your child, don't you? Yeah. Um, So many, actually. And I think, you know, I come to work and it it feels like a little bit of an escape from this, but I see those similarities (laughs) of, of, you know, how I approach my day to day and how I approach bees care because you have to be you have to build relationships you have to build trust you have to be able to question you know when you you know there are no stupid questions I say it all the time in my in my work life and I you know and I ask a lot of what may be seen as stupid questions in in bees care you know when I'm in that world but it's true there are no Mm. stupid questions if if you're not sure if you don't know ask and ask again so there are so many similarities because it's not our world it's kind of you get to the point you know, I can, any, any, someone comes to me, I must have it every day. I must have every day. I must get a message from someone. The child's got it. The dog's got it. The cat, I just, even, we even had a cat with it. I mean, our cat got run over and they said, did you know that your cat's got hip dysplasia? I'm like, well, that doesn't no. surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> so she had a cast on her leg for six weeks in the ensuite bathroom. But I know it's so, you know, even I've been on hospital rounds with with Professor Clark. I've I've done those things. I made myself, I made myself into a hip expert. <laughs> no, I'm trying to undo what I've done, <laughs> in a way. So it's, but it's it's true. You do have to, and not everyone can do it. Hmm. And that is that is the hard thing. And yeah, it it it's it's difficult. It's very difficult. But had I not done what I've done to try to make changes, to try to make resources. What happens if I have a grandchild that has it and nothing has changed? Then I haven't made the most of what was a crappy situation. And I do I do say that in the book, and I'm quite honest, it was not easy. It was not easy and it... But he's such a funny, ch- you know, he's such a funny chap. And I watch him out there now on the on the football field. Like this week, it's the last football match. I watch him so determined on his surfboards and, you know, that spirit in him. And I think if you didn't have that spirit, you would have been broken. And, yeah. and I really commend him on, and my other son. It's just like, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. It's not what I saw, but it's what we got. Now, I couldn't wait to not think about DDH anymore once B's first surgery was over. And I was really happy to just file the kind of regular checks uh-huh. sort of at the back of my mind as, you know, her, her care admin. <laughs> There's so much of it. Um, but I mean, I, I, I so admire that you took that stance where, you know, you wanted to, on top of Luke's care, on top of, as you say, managing your household, you know, your other son, your marriage, work. Um, you know, all of the things, which is a lot. You you really threw yourself into the charity and the book as well, didn't you? I really, I so admire that that impulse in you. So, and you've won awards for that work, haven't you? Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> On reflection, I don't, I think I had such a, I, I think I had such a busy brain, I couldn't not do anything. Um, so... Yep. So when I wrote Cast Life, Professor Clark, who was, uh, oh, he's an amazing man um, at Southampton. He wrote the foreword. He helped me with it. Um, there were lots of parents who helped. I sat for a while on a steering group with Great Ormond Street, um, looking at research and 
trying not to be too um, vocal, uh, but probably failed that one. Um, I was also a, I sat on the advisory, I'm on the advisory board for the International Hip Dysplasia Institute in America. Um, so I still, I'm not overly active because I got to the point where I didn't want to be, I was like, oh God, I don't want to be perceived of having, you know, Munchausen's or something. Or <laughs> I'm also aware that he was getting older. I didn't want him to be like the poster boy for hip dysplasia. I think it might have been in 2021. I was awarded one of the inaugural hip heroes um, by a Canadian organisation. So that was very nice. And also I've done some work with Orth- Orthopaedic Research UK. Um yeah amazing and what has work meant to you through all of this very difficult you know and and long journey for you now Mm. I mean obviously Lucas is that is that much older than than where where I am in this journey with these it's it's years and years and years and years you know that that you've been juggling (laughs) this juggle (laughs) yeah I'm yeah I struggle with um you know what did work mean to you throughout that oh it was it was a tell you what it was a godsend actually you know, to shut my office door and write my books. So I've, I've written three now, but they, writing for me was a, an element of solace. Um, being able to use the PR, like I said, to go back and know that I could go back to my career at some point. Um, so last year, I think it was in October, so he was 13, the surgeon said, okay, well, you actually wouldn't know he'd ever had anything done. It's not 100%. That I think that took me a couple of months to decompress from thinking, oh, well, now, now what then? So if I'm not the hospital mum anymore, I'm not the hip woman, and that's been so much of my identity for such a long time, maybe because of my own doing, but it became very much a part of of me and us. Um, If I hadn't have had my work, well, I I, I couldn't, but I'm now kind of at the other point where my eldest son has left school. Lucas is going towards GCSEs. Um, so I'm starting a PhD in September. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, because wow. I think what it did is I feel like selfishly maybe, I never, with in terms of my career... Although I did, I did carry on doing things, it wasn't the journey I'd envisaged for my career. So I feel like I never met my potential. And the PhD maybe will fill the gap, who knows, mm. in my constant quest to learn and make, make a difference. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's strange because you think, well, it's not... I just did it. I just I just did it. I didn't really it doesn't feel like much because the battle still goes on for so many people. And I often feel quite guilty that and I learned this quite far on, I think after the first operation, and it was a bit like, oh, we're done, we're done, it's all over, I can move on and we can go back to and I can go back to London and pick up my career and he can go to school. Oh, and it's not done. And I'm like, oh God. Oh God, and it's not done again. So there is definitely an element of, yes, they say, but I won't lie that every day I worry when he goes to school, he'll fall over and break his leg or he'll break yeah. the other one. That Maybe that'll leave it out, who knows? Because, you know, it's 
there is an element, I think, when you've done this for such a long time, it's still ingrained in you. So like I yeah. said, the bolt is in my filing cabinet. I still worry that he might do something, but anyone might do something. And I feel slight guilt that I'm leaving it behind to do something else. That is quite hard. It's almost like, oh, we're done. So you can all get on with that. But mm. Yeah. But how wonderful to have the time to be able to focus on you. You know, I think I think it's really an interesting point that you say, although you worked through the whole time, it's not it's not the work that you would have done or the achievement that you would have expected to achieve had that not been no. going on. No, it's not what I. I had to make something new. It's not, you know, I, I'm sure that I would have carried on working in TV in London and I would have pursued the career I had before. But my God, it made, it's led to amazing things. The beaches at the end of our road, you know, I, 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 I've been able to write three books and draw out my children's childhood even longer because we live in rural Devon and that wouldn't have happened. I never take anything for, it's like last week, I, I, I did have a cancer scare and it was a real kind of mortality moment of, okay, no, I'm not dealing with all these hospitals again. <laughs> I feel like, you know, I've got a dad with Alzheimer's. I'm like, oh, no, not again. I'm not doing this again. If there's any interest to readers, Glennon Doyle's Untamed. Um, and she says, we can do hard things. And it is always um, when my dad can remember things. <laughs> he, he's he got Alzheimer's. He doesn't remember a lot. But he, he remembers going for the diagnosis. And he says, you've done these things. And you think, we can do hard things. And you forget sometimes how hard those things are. But I think for the mums that are listening, it's almost like saying, don't underestimate what an amazing job you are doing. And, and to praise yourself. I mean, we, we or when DDHK was really kind of in flow a couple of years ago, I think it might have been after Luke, when we do things like at Christmas, one mum a day would get a voucher to go to Costa. And just when she was doing her Christmas shopping, go and buy yourself a coffee and a piece of cake because no one else, <laughs> you know, no one else will. There isn't there isn't the time or the capacity. And I think it's really overlooked. And I do look at other parents I know and I look at people, you know, and you only have to watch DIY SOS and think, OK, it was just his hips. I have the time and space to reflect that now. But at the time, it just felt like, the worst, the worst thing. Yeah, understandably. Um, I tend not to get too upset about things, I think. I'm a pretty practical, stoic person, um, yeah. but we are facing down the barrel of this surgery for B, and, you know, it's it's hard. And I was, it's you hard. know, I, I was talking to my husband about it. Her, her surgery was supposed to happen a few weeks ago, actually, and it was cancelled at the last minute and, and rescheduled and that was a really big adjustment as well you know as I say there's just always something coming at you out of left yeah. field and you try your best yeah and uh, you know we were having a conversation about it and and um I I was a bit upset and I said to him you know it's just so much it's just so hard and he said to me yeah it, it is hard it is hard <laughs> you know I think there's there's that sense of me just as a woman feeling like I'm over dramatizing a bit or something, you know, or I'm, you know, I'm being a little bit, as you say, a bit of a hysterical woman being like, mm. oh, this is just, this feels so hard. But actually, you know, you take a step back from it and you look at what we're dealing with 
Yeah. And it is hard, you know, and that really actually helped me in terms of my perspective. You know, yeah. it, it is hard. Someone just acknowledging your feelings. Um, I do know that in terms, and I know it's different with B and Lucas, but I know that with with his operation when he was older, in a way it was easier because, I mean, I don't know with B how verbal or anything she is, but just being able for him to say to me, it hurt, you know, when you've got a baby in a cast, they, they can't verbalise anything. Mm. I, I think I need some more morphine or some Nurofen or um, itching. You know, that yeah. that bit makes it easier. But I do really empathise with with what you're facing because it's it it's tough. Yeah, I think one of the things that actually makes it a little bit harder is that she seems quite excited about the surgery. You know, we've tried to explain to her what's going to happen and she loves the idea of going into hospital. She wants to know what she's going to be eating. She's got, she wants to know the menu for breakfast. Yep. She's, you know, yep. there's a, a, you know, they make it so lovely for kids in hospital, don't they? She's seen, she's taken a tour of the ward. There's a playroom. There's a little library. She goes to a special school. So some of her friends are in wheelchairs and she thinks it's cool. She thinks it's cool. She's going to spend the summer in a wheelchair. And Oh yeah, I, I don't. I feel and like you everyone's get all that like attention. that attention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, she, so she's quite looking forward to yeah. it, and I don't know. That just sort of makes it a little bit worse <laughs> and not better for me because I, I feel like she's coming at it from such a place of of optimism, yeah. and I think it is yeah. really going to be quite a rude awakening for her. The the realities of it, but we are fortunate that you know if she was in pain if it felt itchy etc she she's very able to make her needs known so we're very grateful for that but but I think that's great and I think that is their normal that is the I, th- I always thought that with Lucas and Eddie if we just that's what we do oh we go to the hospital that was our life that's that's just it and yeah my god actually one time Lucas he'd been in for a week and they're like you can go and he went no I've ordered my tea I've got to eat it <laughs> it's the worst food ever and the coffee <laughs> I but it, it's, it's silly things like I actually had a hotel room near the hospital because it had a Starbucks in it and it meant that I could go and practically do things you know if when my husband arrived I could go and get a Starbucks which you can see from my mug today that is actually from <laughs> six years ago I think there's the practical things but he was very much like I've got a gold frame um we had a wheelchair and it, we essentially pimped his ride because I was like, I'm fed up with people staring. So we're going to put tinsel on it. And he was in the nativity. And you know what? <laughs> if you want to look, you can look. I would rather, I think I would rather people asked. Yeah. You know, if people actually yeah. said, and quite often if it's me and, I'll, and someone, and I'll say, oh, what, you know, what's going on? We, we have a chap who's in our Costa, not Starbucks, but Costa, you get my coffee habit. Um, and he's in a wheelchair and we started talking to him one day and he said to the boys, never, never drink and drive. This is what happens. Wow. And you're like, but because we actually sat and talked to him and we didn't assume. And, um, but yeah, he quite liked the wheelchair. You might find the others want to use the wheelchair as well. That was, <laughs> yeah, was sometimes sure. a bit of a competition of who would use it the most and the sparkly crutches. And I think they... I think they are far more resilient than us. Yeah. Because we would do anything to swap. I would like, I would take that every day over him. Yeah. And you can't, but you have to then put on the brave face, 
ask the questions, do all of those things, and then just find, I think it's just find some time for you. Mine was always Starbucks. Thinking about it now, I can actually remember after that operation, going to Starbucks where we used to live, and I got there, and I hadn't taken my wallet, and I just sat down and cried. And the guy was like, what's the matter? I was like, well, my baby's just been broken and he's in a wheelchair and I forgot all my money. And he's like, I'll get your coffee. Do you want a cake? And I was like, I was meant to buy, I, was, I think I was meant to buy ketchup in Sainsbury's for tea. And I didn't have, and he gave me a whole wadge of ketchup sachets. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it matters, doesn't it? Kindness yes. like that in the yes. right moment matters so much. So much. It's the kindness, I think. It's just that thing of someone asking if you want a cup of tea or a mum at school. I think she pushed him one day. It was the school fair and he was, I think he was two. Oh my God. And he was screaming and shouting in this awful cast. And this mum said, do you want me to take him for a minute? I said, yes, please. Mm. And, mm. but you, you move on. It's like they say, it, it, you know, you're in a boat and it's wavy and it doesn't last forever. And it's so true. Yeah. Finally, finish the sentence. The biggest lesson raising a Sen child has taught me is. We can do hard things. Yeah. It, it really is that. It is that kind of. You're told, you're told something and you have to d- walk away and digest it and close your door. And you can take, you know, you can take everything from anyone else, but actually just knowing that you will find a way of doing it. But accepting it, it's not always easy and it's not what you want. Um, that is. And I just that I think it makes you, I don't know, but it certainly makes the love that you have for your children. So my, my PhD is essentially avoiding the empty nest because I know when they go, I'll be totally bereft. <laughs> and for one child, that's only two years. and And you've done those hard things. And I think there's also just that little bit of, Keeping something for you, whatever that is, even if it's locking the door and having a wee on your own. <laughs> that's, a, that's a powerful uh, end note there. Um, because that's all for this episode. Um, special thank you to my guest, Natalie Trice. You are now officially part of the Send Mums Career Club. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. If you want to be part of the club too, join us on social media and share your story. You can find us at Send Mums Career on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn or use the hashtag Send Mums Career. We're new here in the podcast space and I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review and of course, come back next time.